As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals Number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. As a business owner of an aquaculture company, what is the role of the veterinarian and a fish health lab manager in your operations? That's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Welcome to episode 13, season 7 of the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This episode, we are happy to have Tara McDonald, who is the veterinarian and fish health lab manager for Maui, Canada West, and is part of the Young Salmon Farmers of BC Group. Welcome to the call, Tara. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. So I wanted to get this show started right off the bat because I'm really excited of what your role is. So maybe you can tell us how can we improve the overall well-being conservation efforts for aquatic species, particularly those residing in vulnerable ecosystems like coral reefs and freshwater habitats. Yeah, so most of my experience is actually with the ocean environment and um like the saltwater species that we farm and deal with most commonly in Canada. Uh, specifically salmon are my species of expertise uh, but i think certainly a lot of the conservation efforts that we focus on in the saltwater environments can be translated to you know more sensitive habitats such as freshwater estuaries uh, rivers and corals um so those kinds of things that you know i think would be the main focus of course is acknowledging that the ocean environment is changing really rapidly This summer has already been such a profound example of that. We're seeing record-breaking water temperatures, you know, for example, around Florida, um in the southern United States where the temperatures are climbing to temperatures that we just haven't seen before and they're having unprecedented effects on these environments. Um so we need to I think look at the bigger picture of climate change as a whole and how that's impacting these environments and the species that live in them, both sensitive and non-sensitive. Uh, similarly, you know, when we talk about especially around where I am in British Columbia, often a sensitive topic is of course that urbanization around water environments, whether that's a river, an estuary, uh or just the coast itself. So that includes not only wastewater management and waste management in general, but also just simple things like roads that go over rivers, uh houses being built near rivers and the sensitivity of runoff. Uh, into those environments what sort of things could potentially be introduced to those environments just as a fact of we as people living in those environments and then of course there's the topics of overfishing uh resource management 
and logging and mining, uh, those industrial activities that can have impacts on those environments. So those are all things that we need to consider and look at. And whether that translates into conservation efforts like habitat restoration or changing the way we zone certain things so that certain industries are not located near those in those environments or whether we just look at the larger picture of climate change and how we as people interact with our environment those are all kind of big picture things it's fascinating you just mentioned about the climate this summer here in british columbia i was just reading on linkedin this morning how about an article that went viral because they were denying that El Nino is happening all over the world. So I thought I'd just put that in, but which leads me to my next question, because your role is really pivotal in terms of the operations of an agriculture company. So what are some of the most significant challenges you encounter in diagnosing and treating diseases in aquatic animals? And how do you address these challenges effectively? So certainly here in British Columbia, um, the main challenges that we face are actually environmental. Um, certainly, we're very fortunate in that many of the infectious diseases we've developed effective vaccination for um, and husbandry uh, methods that can limit those diseases. Um, so the main things that I worry about as the veterinarian with MOE is um, environmental impacts. So things like plankton blooms, jellyfish, fluctuating oxygen levels in the water. Um, and so the challenge, of course, is that we often can't control those things. Uh, so the challenge is instead trying to mitigate them. So whether that's looking at ensuring that the fish are as healthy as possible so that they can cope with those changes or coming up with like new technological advancements as to how we mitigate. So including, you know, um, semi-closed containment systems, uh, oxygen delivery systems, those sorts of things are kind of pivotal to addressing not only that these things are just part of the natural environment of where we farm in BC, but also that climate change is making these things more unpredictable, um, where, you know, the seasons aren't really following the pattern that we're used to, uh, but that, you know, there's always also the potential for the introduction of new concerns. You know, are we going to start seeing new diseases here that maybe we haven't before because of warming water or changing species in the natural environment? So always kind of being alert to potential changes in fish health and welfare that could signal that something different is happening. Um, that's been a really big part of my job the last few years as well. And I forgot about even biosecurity. So I'm not a technical person. So maybe for someone who's like uh, non-technical in terms of the lingo that we use in the industry, maybe you can tell us more about biosecurity. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because biosecurity is a huge part of my job, but it's probably one of the, I guess I'd say it's like less sexy. It's not something that a lot of people talk about or ask about, but it is so pivotal, pivotal to everything that we do. Um, and that, of course, biosecurity starts in the hatchery, in the freshwater environment, where we actually do have quite a lot of control over the environment um, because we can, you know, UV treat the water, ozone treat the water. Uh, we can ensure that no disease is coming in that way. We have very strict separation between uh, year classes, which for a non-technical person, that could just be thought of the different ages of fish. So, you know, the older fish aren't going to co-mingle with the younger fish that aren't going to co-mingle with, say, the eggs because we have different concerns for all those stages. So really strict separation, that includes staff, equipment, um, movement of stuff in between, as well as major disinfection processes between uh, fish movements. So when fish leave, no more fish will enter until it's been completely uh, clean. So in the hatchery, we have this very tight control and that really tight control is so pivotal to their health in the hatchery. 
But then we move to the ocean environment, where of course we have less control. So we, the things that we can control become super important. And that goes back to those same principles, which is try to avoid commingling of different ages of fish. And we use fallow periods or periods when the farms are not stocked uh, to make sure that there's separation between ages of fish. Also try to limit the movement of equipment and people between different sites and between different areas. Because of course the health concerns of one area is not gonna be the same as the health concerns of another. And we want to avoid mixing those. Um, we work really closely with our regulators as well to ensure that any time fish get moved, whether that's from freshwater into the ocean environment or from one site in the ocean to another site, that we have really strict um, regulations that we have to follow in terms of ensuring that the fish are completely healthy before they move and that we're not moving any disease concerns from one area to another. So that's kind of its own form of biosecurity, which is ensuring that any fish that get moved are healthy. And then I like to think of it too, is we use these, as I mentioned, the vaccinations where we have most of our common infectious diseases we vaccinate against. And that's sort of its own form of biosecurity as well, where we don't have to worry about the disease if the fish are actually biologically protected against it. Wonderful. Just really wonderful to know all these things. And with that, since you were talking to us about how you ensured all, all health and well-being of the fish in the farm, could you share with us any innovative approaches or technologies that you employ to safeguard this fish against potential threats? So the most significant thing in my job, uh, aside from just ensuring that the fish are healthy overall, which is really um, focusing on really good husbandry practices, I've mentioned the full vaccination a couple of times, uh, treating where necessary, you know, with... Um, approved medications that are prescribed by myself, a veterinarian when needed. The probably the main challenge in my job, but the challenge being that I see a lot of innovation and a lot of change in is actually sea lice management. Um, so that's something that's changed a lot in my career, both from terms of that we used to go from just having like one in-feed medication available, and that was pretty much all we had and all we used, to now we have several non-medicinal options, including fresh water, mechanical delousing, uh, as well as hydrogen peroxide. So this makes for a really good integrated pest management plan that not only focuses on sea lice management, but also focuses on good fish welfare, ensuring that we're rotating uh, methods and following like the best handling practices um, to not only just manage sea lice, but manage the fish in a way that they're healthy as well. Yes, really good. Um, and so in your professional experience, what have been the most successful approaches for promoting public awareness and engagement in protecting marine life and aquatic habitats? I think one of the main things is just transparency. You know, getting the information that is accurate and scientifically backed and having that out there for the public. Of course, you know, we're in an information age where all of these things are at our fingertips. You know, anybody can go on their phone or their computer and find an abundance of information. And it's not always fact-checked, it's not always accurate, and it's not always that, you know, the most accurate or the most useful is what they find first. <laughs> um, so I think just making sure that the information that we do have that is scientifically backed, whether that's about conservation, the ocean ecosystem, aquaculture, just to make sure it's available and it's citable and it's out there for people to find if they want to. And then to also, you know, do things such as this, like podcasts, social media, um, to get the information. Because I think it's quite new for a lot of people as well. They, 
maybe don't understand aquaculture very well. Um, but it's, of course, in the news a lot. And as I mentioned, you know, this summer has been a, a pivotal summer for a lot of uh, climate news and environment news. And I think it's easy for people to find that information, but to maybe make sure that the information they're finding is accurate and factual um, is even more important because we want to lead people down the right path and make sure that they have that information available to them. So I think transparency and just being fully open with the information we have available is the most important thing for public policy and information. I really like that. I think most of the people had this idea of what aquaculture is, what sustainability is, what regeneration is, but people like us in the industry still need to have an ongoing education assets to be able to have the health and welfare, not just of the fish for long-term success, but you kind of alluded to it a, a little bit with the transparency. How many team members do you have in your group? Um, my team currently, we are about three and a half, three full-time and one part-time employee. That's our, that's our team in the fish health and food safety department. So because I wanted to ask you, how do you collaborate with them to implement a comprehensive fish health management plan? So we're in, you know, we're in constant communication between ourselves and the other departments in the company. Because um, I think everyone would agree that fish health is one of the most pivotal aspects of what we do as a company. Um, everything kind of hinges on the fact that the fish are healthy and alive uh, and ready to be harvested and to make a good quality, sustainable protein at the end of the day. Um, so my department, we're involved in everything from the freshwater stage all the way from the egg, and then of course, all the way up to harvest um, in terms of the food safety. So when we work together, it's always ensuring that that open communication is there, not only within our team, but with the production team, with the harvesting team, with the operations team, we kind of touch every part of the business. Um, and we're kind of involved in every part of the business as well. So ensuring that, you know, we're always sharing that information with everybody, that everybody's sharing the information with us so that we're informed and know what's going on um, is kind of critical to any health management plan. And then, of course, making sure that any changes that are made or new information that becomes available gets communicated out to everybody so that, you know, as I mentioned, things could potentially change. There could be a new disease of concern identified. There could be a new innovation that comes in. We're saying, you know, this is a new tool that we're going to start using. And whether that has an impact on fish health or not, we still need to be involved to ensure that it doesn't have an impact. Or if it does have an impact, it can be mitigated. Um, and, you know, making sure that the every part of the business is reflecting good fish health and welfare. Wonderful. So are there any specific initiatives or protocols you have established to ensure the optimal health and welfare of the Maui salmon? You know, I keep pointing kind of back to we may ensure that there's full vaccination. So anything that can be vaccinated against is because prevention is always better than attempting a cure. Um, and it's its own form of biosecurity. But as well as, you know, we we look to um, selective breeding as a really important aspect of our development as a company and for our fish health and welfare as, all, as well. You know, some people might hear selective breeding. Um I want to, you know, just emphasize that it's it is different from genetically modified. Um, so there is no kind of artificial selection happening here necessarily, as much as it's we take the fish and we say, are these the best match for each other? Are they going to produce the best offspring? And we have a whole genetics team and broodstock team that is involved in that, um, because of course we know 
that if we have a robust salmon genetically that is, you know, well-bred to withstand certain challenges, to grow well, um, to do well in the environment that we place them in, that we've kind of given them that strong foothold to begin with. Uh, and then, of course, you know, going back to that freshwater stage and ensuring that they're healthy before they ever reach the ocean environment, they're free of disease, and they're robust and ready to deal with the challenges that are going to come with going into that ocean environment. Sounds good. Is there some kind of a density requirement that you guys have? Because I remember in our shellfish, we have like an optimal density so that the fish is not together to prevent disease, as you know. Is there something like that in what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. There's always going to be an optimal density and it's going to change throughout their life cycle as well. You know, when they're small, they might have a different density than they prefer when they're larger. And for, especially for fish welfare, um, we are always being very mindful of the density and ensuring that it doesn't go over certain thresholds because we do know that, you know, when it goes over a certain threshold, you have fish that are uh, unhappy, stressed, and potentially more susceptible to disease. But certainly, you know, we also need to maximize production and salmon do like to be at a certain uh, density as well so we try to find kind of like that sweet spot where they're happy they have good health and welfare uh, production is maximized um, but we're also not causing any undue stress and that's going to be different throughout their life cycle and we're really mindful of that thank you for sharing that how did you get into this Tara uh yeah so I you know I've always wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a little little kid um when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I kind of just fell into a summer job working with rainbow trout and Atlantic salmon in a research facility. And I just, you know, I was floored. I thought these animals are so cool. Their potential to feed people is huge. Uh, their feed conversion rates, I was specifically doing nutrition trials. So I became really familiar with their feed conversion rates, which is, you know, you feed them a pound of food, they'll give you a pound of flesh very near. Um, my background was mostly in cows, which of course don't have the greatest feed conversion rates. Um, and I just thought, wow, this is really cool. Um, I grew up on the east coast of Canada, so I was really familiar with fisheries and wild caught fisheries. But aquaculture was so new to me and it was really eye opening to do these nutrition trials and to see these fish performing in these amazing ways. And kind of from there, I was hooked. I totally fell in love with salmon and trout as animals and became really uh, motivated to be involved in their health and welfare. And so all through vet school, I just focused on, on aquaculture, uh, both in a research regulatory and field approach. And when I graduated, I just knew, you know, field, field work and being directly involved in the fish was where I wanted to be. Research and regulatory was great, but I wanted to be out there with the fish. And here I am. Well, we're so happy you're here. The biggest takeaway I have from our conversation is along the lines of when you were talking about transparency and open communication, which I think is needed in whatever industry you're in when you're in business. And obviously some of the technical stuff that you mentioned about biosecurity and selective breeding and your nutrition trials is very interested too. Very interesting too. How can they get in touch with you there? Oh, sorry, what was that? How can they get in touch with you? I would say the best way to get in touch with me is probably by email. Um, so my email is just uh, my name, <laughs> Tara.McDonald at Moe, that's M-O-W-I dot com. That's probably the best way to get in touch with me. And from there, I'm happy to meet with or chat with anybody who's got any questions or wants to just learn more. 
Thank you so much for being the show. Please remember to review the show and see you next week. Remember, you help build a home in the Philippines every time we launch an episode on the podcast. Thanks, Tara. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues, and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.